Welcome to the first Cycling Tips Nerd Alert edition of 2020. I am your host, James Huang. I'm Kaylee Fritz. And I'm Dave Rome. And today, we have a special episode, which, seeing as how we are now in a new decade, we are going to be talking about some of the top tech from the last decade. Some of the things that have made the most impact, some of the things that have sort of made their way onto as many bikes as possible, things that have changed the industry landscape, things that have changed bikes in general. And uh, we're going to maybe debate a little bit. I don't know if we're all going to agree on our list here, but we're going to find out. I disagree already. No. Well, <laughs> Kaylee, Kaylee I, I, I think we can say that you are absolutely going to have an issue with pick number one <laughs> you're just trying to get me yelled at again this is james's goal every single episode of nerd alert is to get me yelled at by people on the internet and it's uh well i think I've, it's working and i think i've been successful it's yeah i think i've been working. successful every time if uh if we do sound a bit different everybody out there it is because james dave and i are well and we're in three different places normally james and i get together to make this podcast and then dave calls in from sydney uh but this time we're all just coming back from the holidays and we're missing some audio equipment and yeah we're all in our own separate places so we're going to sound a little bit different and we'll try not to talk over each other too much and we should also point out that uh our usual guest mechanic host zach is still probably skiing up in the mountain somewhere as he should be yes uh, speaking of skiing i have to say that you know seeing as how i've now switched to skiing this year after many decades of snowboarding uh my legs were tired like my my my, my quads were sore and it took me a minute to realize why because i haven't ridden my bike in like a week and i was like oh wait the skiing thing is kind of hard it is it yep it's like doing wall sits <laughs> you'll get used to it over and over and over again over and over and over again wait till you get good at the bumps then it really hurts oh I, i've got a ways to go for that one <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes but another way to get your quads burning pick number one. Oh no this is the pick that dave and i seem to agree with as far as the top tech of the last decade possibly maybe the biggest influence in cycling in general or at least road cycling anyway and it has to be Zwift, which I think for pretty much everyone listening, you would know that Zwift is the online indoor training software platform that basically gets you riding with a whole bunch of other people when you are on a smart trainer. And it sort of is meant to mimic riding outside with a little you know, on-screen environment and a variety of different courses and automatic uh, resistance changes and that sort of thing. And as silly as it might sound to some people <coughs> kaylee mm. um it we we know for a fact i mean strava released their their year-end data a few weeks ago and we know for a fact that you know this trend indoors that we had been hearing about for quite some time is real and zwift i think is almost single-handedly responsible for bringing a lot of people indoors yeah okay I don't disagree, actually. I know, I know that you know you find that surprising, but if we're if we're talking about the tech, the technology that changed cycling in the last decade the most, I think you can make a pretty good argument for something like disc brakes on drop bar bikes, uh, some other things like that. But at the end of the decade, I think if we looked at look at sort of the the, the full breadth of of the way that people ride bikes. I would say that, yeah, I, th I think Zwift, you can make a pretty good argument for Zwift being the tech of the decade, even though I don't use it much. 
But that's not that's neither here nor there because this is not what Kaylee Fretz's tech of the decade. This is you know the whole everyone who rides a bike. It's the thing that changed riding bikes the most. And you have to admit that suddenly riding your bike inside, which I think a lot of people did when they were racers or you know they had some big goal uh, as a means to that end. But now you have just people riding inside just because they can ride inside and not be bored out of their mind. I think that that's a pretty massive difference from a decade ago. Well, according to Strava's numbers, uh, even from just a couple of years ago, so 2015-2016 season, according to their numbers, only 0.2% of rides in the summer in the Northern Hemisphere were virtual, so done indoors on a, on a smart system. Uh, and only 5 per, 5.5% of rides were indoors during the Northern winter. Now, fast forward to 2018-2019, now almost just shy of 5% of indoor, uh, 5% of rides during the summertime are indoors. And now uh, more than 15% of rides, uh, at least during January of 2019 anyway, were indoors. I mean, that's a huge, huge increase. That is a massive increase. Why are so many people, why are you riding inside in the summer? It gets really hot here. So um, that's one reason. And I think it's snowing where you are. So that's probably another reason. I would say there is one big, one big piece of that puzzle that you have that you can't relate to yet, Kaylee, mm. and that is kids. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I let's talk none. about how much free time you have at the end at the end of the day. I have tons. It's great. <laughs> yes, yes, and I have and I have none. You made this decision, James. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I did. You brought it upon yourself. And and later this evening, I hate to say it because I did not have time to ride today, and it is also crazy, insanely windy outside. I am actually going to be riding probably in my basement later. That's okay. I'm okay with it. I, I mean, there's you know there's a decent chance that I ride inside sometime in the next week because I have to go to Tordon Under in like actually both of us do uh, soon in about a, in about a week and a half. And I literally have not ridden a bicycle in three weeks. So my my plan at the moment is to not shave my white hairy legs and just bust those out at TDU on the morning group rides and just see what people say and then immediately get dropped because I haven't ridden my bike in a month. <sighs> yeah, I may need to train a little bit in the next six days. You should adapt yourself by just uh, taking your Zwift and putting it inside a sauna and just using it there because otherwise it's going to be a bit of a shock to the system once you land in Australia. Yeah, it was uh, it was 35 yesterday when I went cross-country skiing, which is what? It's uh, two or three degrees Celsius, and it felt really even, warm. It's like, it's like it's like one. It's like one, and I actually w- I ended up in a T-shirt because <laughs> I was so warm. And I think that, yeah, I think that 40 degrees Celsius is going to be a bit of a shock to the system in Adelaide next week, but I'll get you through think. it. You I'll think? I'll be all right. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be fine. So I think... I think in the, what I'm going to do to acclimate, I'm not going to ride my Zwift setup in a sauna. I think what I'm going to do is just, I'm going to swap out my, my little kicker fan thing for a hairdryer. I'm just going to leave it on high and then combine, combine that with a heat gun. I'm just going to aim both of them right at my face and then do that for about an hour or so. That should work because my last ride in the heat, uh, my eyes were watering from the dry air. So uh, I think oh, you'll, good, you'll be good. good. Okay. I think the hairdryer should be spot on. All right, excellent. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad I bought travel insurance for this trip because I may have a, uh, <coughs> a, a last minute illness com- <coughs> coming along. Uh, yeah. Okay, let's talk about riding bikes outside. How about that? Outside bikes. All right, Kaylee. Riding outside, what's number two on the list? Oh, thank goodness. Okay, I am much more into this particular bit of tech from the last decade, and this is 
gravel bikes slash bigger tires on drop bar bikes in general. This, for me anyway, is the tech of the decade. Because if you look at the bikes that people are buying today, compared to the bikes that people were buying in 2010, they are not the same. If we ignore mountain bikes completely, you know, particularly here in Boulder, I don't, I can't actually think of anybody who's bought a regular road bike in the last year. Literally everybody I've talked to is like, ah, I just got a new bike. They're always gravel bikes. They're all gravel bikes. And we know because we have our bike selector, we are not going to be doing a what bike should I buy this episode. But in other episodes of Nerd Alert, you can go onto the bike selector, you send some information into us, and we help you find a bike. We know from all of those forms that have been filled out, and we have lots of them now, almost everybody is looking for a gravel bike. And that is very different from what it was from what it was a decade ago. A decade ago was still, you know, 23 mil tires. You throw a 25 in there and hope it would clear. Now we're talking about running 40s, 45s, riding your bike absolutely anywhere you want to ride it, except for maybe mountain bike trails. The only cons, I think, is that everyone has to buy a new bike now. But that's, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world. Well, I think I would say another reason why people are looking at gravel bikes now instead of road bikes is, um, and I can't remember when exactly I wrote this column, but the thing is road bike technology, I mean, yeah, there have been still continuing advances and improvements in technology and whatnot, but for the most part, road bikes have plateaued in performance for quite a while. I mean, yeah, like a modern road bike is still better than one you can get just a handful of years ago, but it's not really that different. Whereas a gravel bike is very different from the road bike that you probably have already and offers a very different experience and lets you do different rides, explore different routes. And for me, if I had some money to spend on a new drop bar bike of some sort, I would absolutely be looking to something that gives me something else to do as opposed to a slightly, slightly better, faster, stiffer, more efficient, lighter, whatever way of doing what I already do now. Agreed. Yeah, it's, it's sort of put drop bar bikes in the same space as mountain bikes where all of a sudden the technology is moving really fast and there's lots of different options, different sort of styles that you can go for. Whereas really road bikes, you have, you know, you have aero road bike, comfort road bike, endurance road bike, whatever you want to call it. They're all basically the same. They ride within a couple percentage points of each other in any sort of meaningful way. Modern gravel bikes, you have the full spectrum in sort of the almost a mountain bike all the way to the almost road bike. And you can really, you can tailor your bike to the type of riding that you want to do. And I think that's that's really cool. For me, that is the tech of the decade, even though I will bow to both of you and your outvoting of me making Zwift the tech of the decade, even though I'm bummed about it. So I might, I might be jumping ahead here, but I actually think that what we're talking about is likely to be the tech of the next decade in how what like the endurance road bikes that we know and that we we believe that most cyclists should be on you know the majority of road cyclists that are in bunch rides on the weekends they should realistically be on an endurance bike not like a aero racing bike but um i think that's going to converge with these gravel bikes we're talking about to build you know the this new all road category where you can take them on actual gravel roads and take them in a group ride um and i think it's still a pretty early days for that kind of bike i mean i i would argue i mean and i felt this for quite a while anyway that you know similar to what we've seen on the mountain bike side of things where i mean yeah there is still like hyper segmentation of different kinds of bikes and um you know tons and tons of choice but ultimately what everyone is still looking for is the one bike that suits the majority of their needs the best 
And to me, it's, it's sort of like what has happened in the automotive world with crossovers and SUVs. You know, even though most people would maybe be best suited in a station wagon or a hatchback or something like that, what people end up gravitating toward, at least in the U.S., are crossovers and SUVs because it affords them the, the greatest range of possibilities for whatever they would like to do, even though what they're usually doing is just going to the grocery store. So let's 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 flip this on its head a little bit and look to the future. I know we're talking about the last decade, but I think that a bit of prediction making is is fun. So, what does the gravel bike of 10 years from now look like? Do we have increased segmentation or do people or do we sort of figure out the geometry, figure out the spacing, figure out all these sort of details and we end up with sort of gravel bikes kind of coalescing and looking more and more alike at the end of this decade. What do you guys think? I think it's going to fragment I think you're going to get the road end of the spectrum uh, where, you know, as I said, like the current endurance bikes actually become kind of like soft gravel bikes. Uh, And then you get the hardcore off-road bikes like that, uh, like that new evil we were talking about previously. I I would love to say, I would love to believe that we are going to see a a contraction and some sort of, some sort of, uh, I guess, you know, mass agreement on what these bikes should be. Um, yeah, you know, because I, I had been hoping for that sort of thing for quite a while on the mountain bike side, but you know, sort of like what Dave mentioned, what we are actually seeing is a continuing increase in fragmentation. Uh, and part part of it, I think, is because bikes have gotten so good, companies are trying harder and harder to differentiate themselves. And in order to do that, they come up with these new weird things that you know that come across as somehow better than the competition that somebody else doesn't have. It's somehow unique. Um, and then it just becomes a little bit more confusing. So as things move forward, I mean, is it going to be more complicated? I dare say we're probably going to be getting more of those bike selector emails than fewer. But I mean, that you could say that's a good thing. If if the you know fragmentation of the market does not necessarily have to be a bad thing, it you could also view it as people have more options, right? I mean, we already have way more gravel bike options today than we had even two years ago. I mean, two years ago most of the major brands didn't really have a good gravel bike yet and now they all do right and they've all t- and they all taken a slightly different tack on it yeah like you know before trek came out with the checkpoint they had the the quote-unquote domani gravel and it really wasn't a gravel bike no it was just a, a road bike that took the same size tires as the other road bike uh yes exactly all right what's what what, what let's round out the podium here what's uh what's our third top tech of the decade, James. Uh, you know, this. I forgot to include this on my original list, and I can't believe I forgot to include it on the list. Uh, it is going to be another controversial pick. Oh. But I, I can't see how there's any way to put together a list of top tech of the last decade without including e-bikes. Yeah. I, so yeah, I, I'm hugely on board with that one. <laughs> I, just, I just got back from running downtown, and the wind today is gusting to probably 40 or 50 miles an hour. It literally... It, 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 it stopped me on my way west, and that was with an e-bike. I, I don't think I would have actually gotten downtown without an e-bike. Just came back from my little you know couple errands this morning, came back in, started this podcast up. E-bike has become a daily part of my life. It's it's We see them all over the place here in town where we have really good infrastructure. I would totally agree, I, and I think that we are actually, the U.S. in particular, is just on the cusp of the real e-bike decade, which is the coming decade, which is when they start showing up on group rides and when they start showing up on more mountain bike trails. And when we start seeing them in the sort of 
in our bike world, not the sort of commuter transport bike world, but in this sort of recreational bike world that, that Cycling Tips mostly lives in, right? I think that, that that is imminent here in the States. Yeah. And like, yeah, the, the e-mountain bike movement is already very, very much uh, seen here in Sydney and, and beyond. Like a lot of our trails, like when I go mountain biking now, uh, I typically see e-mountain bikes before I see regular mountain bikes. And it's cool to see because it's, it's people that you previously probably wouldn't have seen on the trails and now getting out and actually exploring. Um, but I have a different opinion about the e-road movements, uh, at least in Australia where we have the the EU laws which govern a 25 kilometer per hour restricted speed. That's really low. It's really low. It's, it's like really you're low. going to get dropped. If you turn up to a group ride, regardless of what level your group ride rides at, you are going to get dropped at some point riding a motorized bike. And there is nothing more embarrassing than getting dropped when you have a motor equipped to your bike very true but yeah kelly i would agree with you i mean at least from a kind of personal mobility standpoint um i mean e-bikes have clearly had a huge influence on how people choose to get around i mean yes there is the whole you know scooter thing and um you know car share and you know lime and or i'm sorry not lime a lyft and uh, uber and that sort of thing um but I mean, we are seeing a big, big increase in e-bikes for just general urban transportation. And yeah, I agree. That's a huge, huge plus. All right, I think I'm happy with that. We have, so we, we have our podium then. We have Zwift, maybe, uh, gravel bikes, big tires in second place, and the e-bike in third. That's a pretty solid podium for the decade, I think. I would say so. And it, it is kind of odd though that one of them is a bike with a motor. And then one of them is riding inside, and then the other one is riding a bike outside. It's a very interest, interesting changing landscape of cycling. Yeah, I, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, the the you know my curmudgeonly tendencies certainly sort of go, balk at that a little bit. You, you shouldn't be so curmudgeonly, Kaylee. You're too young. But I, yeah, but I am. <laughs> But at the same time, I should say my curmudgeonly tendencies get over overwhelmed generally by my my more rational self. And I think that a lot of these things are, you know, more ways to ride bikes is a good thing. Whether that's inside, whether that's gravel bikes, whether that's e-bikes, more different ways for more different people to ride bikes in whatever way they want. That is, that's a good thing. I think that, you know, that that's going to end up with more people on bikes and that will it'll make the industry stronger it'll make it so we have better bikes and equipment it will hopefully help some of our transportation woes i think that there is there is really no downside to any of the three things that we're talking about here well and then i would say that in terms of getting more people on bikes and getting more people pedaling for sure that's a solid podium yep also have a bunch of i guess we can call them honorable mentions yeah um since this isn't an, a, exactly a a uh, a formally ordered list um i would say the next one on my list is uh mips or an increased focus on helmet safety in general which i'm super psyched psyched about coming from someone who, who uh you know i definitely have had concussions in the past um 
thankfully it hasn't been too recent. Um, Kaylee, I know your brother has had to deal with concussions pretty severely. Yep. Uh, and it's it's a big deal. I mean, the primary function of any bicycle helmet, helmet in general, is to protect the brain and skull of the wearer. But I'd say it's really only pretty recently that safety has actually come to the forefront in terms of how these things are marketed in the bike industry. And going along with that, I would have to say that the, the folks at Virginia Tech maybe had a big influence on this as well, because while a lot of this safety stuff was you know, viewed as maybe a bunch of marketing hype by a bunch of people, this is sort of just another way to sell people a new helmet, the lab, the independent lab at Virginia, uh, Virginia Tech, they have, they have objectively verified that these helmets provide better safety. Yeah, they've done, a, I think, a pretty important bit of work there in really changing the way that the entire industry looks at helmets and helmet helmet marketing. And then in the way that we all look at it, right? The, the consumer looks at, at helmets and marketing. Because I think that for a long time, because there was no data out there that really showed whether one helmet was safer than another, we just kind of assumed that if you were wearing a helmet, it was roughly equivalent to any other helmet you, were, you could be wearing. So at that point, you look at... Okay, how aerodynamic is it? How light is it? How how cool is it? Those other things take precedent because you don't have any way of comparing the safety. But now we do. We have a way of comparing how safe these helmets are. Not all of them, but a lot of them now. And that has really changed the way that I think people are buying, which is going to change the way that the industry acts. Well, hopefully, if we are going to be talking about where things are going in the future, um, in addition to MIPS and helmet safety being a big, uh, I guess, tech trend of the previous decade, uh, my hope is that helmet makers figure out ways to basically incorporate that stuff without compromising on other things as we move forward into the next decade. And it is starting to happen already. It is. I mean, MIPS has a bunch, yeah, MIPS has a bunch of new uh, new designs that basically are not just a traditional plastic liner. Um, you have s- setups that are basically like, sort of like a, uh, like almost like mini MIPS layers built into every pad um you have companies like pock that have like these gel-based sheer uh sheer pads um and then you know there's a bunch of different ways that people are going about it now uh bontrager has their own setup and you know similar to Coroid, although both of those are really hot um but it does seem like it's getting better and i think now that people are focused more on helmets that are safer my guess is that people are not going to be willing to compromise on that safety now just to get some of the other benefits as much as they maybe would have been before exactly and and we haven't seen much of that because currently like what we're talking about that that mips where it's integrated into the pad that was mips sl uh specialized actually had an exclusive uh usage contract for that for a year so i think that contract just ended so we should see a, a number of helmets adopt that and all of a sudden become breathable well we'll see where it goes dave what's next on your list on my list uh let's let's talk about electronic shifting okay what about electronic shifting dave what are we thinking here and because electronic shifting is not really new i think shimano came out with their original electronic dura as di2 system in like 2008 i believe yeah 2008 2009 and then obviously yeah and then obviously there was you know sort of zap and mectronic and whatever before then but yeah, electronic shifting. I guess it's, is it safe to say that it's more that the previous decade really is when electronic shifting came to the masses? I'd say so. Uh, I mean, in the last few years, we've seen it at the pro level become the only choice. Uh, like you will, you'll be hard pressed, and it's now you know a news report when we see a rider riding on a mechanical shifting, and it's generally only for Paris Bay that you see it. 
Uh, and yeah, for the masses, I mean, we're talking about previously it was kept for the very highest uh, end of bikes. And now it's pretty common to walk into a bike shop and find one on the floor for, you know, four to $5,000 that is fully equipped with uh, concealed electronic shifting. Makes good noises. It makes good noises. For me, the biggest thing here is that after many, many decades of doing mechanical shifting, Shimano uh, still fray cables on their mechanical systems. And that may get me in a little bit of hot water, but it is the truth. Uh, Anyone that rides a mechanical Shimano system long enough without maintaining the cables will eventually suffer a frayed cable. Uh, and sure, you just need to replace your cables more often and it is perfect, but that issue doesn't exist with electronic shifting. You don't have a cable to fray. You don't have a cable to contaminate. You don't have a cable that you have to worry about what type of bends it's doing in the frame. It's just something that always works unless you impact the derailleur. Uh, and yeah, it's, I think it has changed the way people ride and the way that they necessarily don't have to maintain their bikes as much uh so for me it's it's a big change in the industry i still run mechanical on my bikes so do i (laughs) (laughs) yeah but 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 it's like you said dave i mean you also have to be willing to do the maintenance and and kind of be be kind of in tune enough with your bikes to kind of recognize when something is about to go wrong um whereas with electronic i guess the beauty of it for just average average riders is that it i mean it, it for the most part does what it's supposed to do it works perfectly each and every time you push the button and unless something is bent or the battery is dead or whatever you push that button you get the gear that you want and that's it no questions i mean that that is the case i guess unless it doesn't work i mean so it either works perfectly or it doesn't work at all um but i like those odds yeah 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 <laughs> But at least for the most part, when it is working, it is dead on. And it's these days, it's pretty much a rarity that it is not working. And now we have wireless options from SRAM. And, you know, a lot of people thought that those were going to go bust because, you know, wireless seemed like it was going to be more complicated, more prone to failure. And we just haven't heard about it. I mean, it's been out for several seasons now, and you just haven't heard of any widespread issues with ETAP. I'm, which I think is pretty impressive. I've been a big ETAP fan. I, yeah, I've got it on a gravel bike. It's It's been completely hassle-free. The only kind of weirdness I've discovered is that I, I think that uh, when you travel with it, if you don't take the batteries off, it like wakes itself up all the time. And so I've, yes. I've definitely gone places with fully charged batteries, arrived, gone out for one ride, and ran out of battery halfway halfway around because wah, some, wah, yeah wah. something happened in the case. That's the only kind of weirdness I've I've discovered with ETAP, and it's not even you know that's kind of how it's designed, right? It's, it's it's waking itself up when when it's moving. So if you put it in a in a bag and fly it across the world, it's gonna sort of get jostled around a bunch. But other than that, it's been completely problem free, and I've, I've been super impressed with it. And the ability to not have to run wires through my frame is awesome. I love not having yes. to fuss with that yeah so just and and just on that point i think uh moving into the next decade and we've already seen it now but electronic shifting is changing bike design uh you know there's a a number of frames out there that are electronic only and uh it just allows frame manufacturers to be a little lazier with their design in terms of not having to figure out how to run a mechanical cable through it not having to worry about like a, a mechanical cable maybe rattling in the frame they can just 
you know, in, in ETAP, it's the easiest, but even with DI2, it's just a small wire that they have to account for now. So you think more electronic only frames in the 2020s? Uh, I think I think we're probably still a few years away from seeing brands really devote resources or uh, completely ignore the mechanical market. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a trend we're seeing for sure. I, I think the thing that will tip the scales in that favor um, would be if Shimano or SRAM or basically, yeah, or if Shimano or SRAM came out with a truly budget-friendly electronic shifting system. Yeah. Um, I mean, there have been talks of Shimano you know, coming out with a 105 level DI2 group. Um, yeah, and similarly, SRAM with a rival ETAP group. Uh, I mean, we haven't seen either of those actually happen. I mean, electronic drivetrains are apparently pretty expensive to develop and, and I guess more specifically, pretty expensive to perfect and really dial in. Um, but I would say until we really, really see those price points come down quite a bit further still than where, from where they are now, I would say it's still not going to be sort of the, the, the de facto norm when it comes to frame design. I mean, it, frames are still going to be predominantly designed for, uh, for mechanical shifting instead of electronic, at least at, at, least at the you know, major price points. I mean, high end, we're going to see certainly more that are electronic only, I think, just because that's what people are buying anyway. Um, but otherwise, I think we've got a little bit of little ways to go. Yeah, that makes me happy. Yeah, I like my mechanical drivetrain. I like that I can fix it. I don't like that it breaks cables, as Dave said. Uh, and I've and I've experienced two of those frayed cables in Shimano. Remember, when, remember when that first started happening, and they said it. They'd never heard of it before, and uh, that wasn't true. So, so here's a little little inside baseball here for people listening. Uh, generally speaking, when any cycling editor comes to a company and says, "I had such and such problem." I would say nine out of ten times, it's the the response is we've never heard that before. And when in the rea- in reality, you know damn well that they have heard of that before and they know it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That usually- or the local shops with the four to five failures are just not telling that company. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's too bad we don't have Zach on today because he's got plenty of stories on that front where he will literally call a company and say, "Hey, I have this problem." And they'll say, oh, we've never heard of that problem before. And he'll be like, I have talked to you about this with three other bikes, me personally. <laughs> so clearly you've heard of this problem before. We'll, we'll save those stories from Zach for another episode. I feel, I feel like we need to have a, a special episode there. I, yeah. The Do- uh, bike industry lying to consumers <laughs> episode. It, 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 we, we may have to get that episode sponsored by some sort of alcohol manufacturer because I have a feeling we're going to have to get Zach pretty liquored up before that before he starts letting go on that one (laughs) yeah those are the kind of stories that i get like deep into you know long bike rides when we've run out of things to talk about he starts bitching and moaning about something well you gotta start bringing your recorder with you kaylee i know i know i really should anyway do we have do we have more honorable mentions here for for the last decade yes we do uh i i I would have to say we have to mention disc brakes if we're going to mention electronic shifting, we've got to mention disc brakes. I would say, yeah, I would put disc brakes even ahead of electronic shifting, and I would almost yes. put it in the same category as gravel bikes because personally, I see those two things as just intimately related. Like they are the gravel bike as we know it exists because we have drop bar disc brakes, right? It Agreed. just doesn't make any sense 
unless you have a disc brake because you have tire clearance problems all over the place and no one wants to run mini V-brakes. So without the disc brake, we don't have the gravel bike. So if we're saying that the gravel bike is one of our top three of the decade, I think you kind of have to put the disc brake up there as well. Yeah, and now they've gotten to the point where they are they're pretty exceptionally good. Companies have really worked out most of the kinks, I feel like. They're still not perfect. Um, you know, they people still don't like to bleed them, although you really don't have to do it very often. Um, people don't like how, you know, they sometimes squeal when they're wet, which is true. Yep. Um, but it, to, to me, that's, that, that seems more like a learning curve issue than some sort of inherent problem with the technology. Because, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I will, uh, even I will admit that rim brake technology has... I, I guess up until disc brakes basically took over, but rim brake technology has progressed to the point where they can be really, really good. I would say almost as good as disc brakes in, in some situations, but it requires just this perfect magical combination of rim and pad and caliper and, and all these things to, to really get that right. Whereas even a kind of mid-range, semi-mediocre hydraulic disc brake, to me, I feel like it provides much more consistent and reliable stopping power that I would think if I'm an average rider, I mean, that's what I want more than anything. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the performance gains, I think you can, you, can, you can make lots of arguments about the performance gains, but for me, still the most important thing is the fact that they've allowed for bigger tires and that's made bikes a lot more fun. So yes. whether, you have, whether you have good brakes or bad brakes, if you can fit a 30 mil tire in your road bike or a 45 in your gravel bike because there's no space limitation, I think that, that you know, that's changed... The way that we look at bikes, the way that we ride bikes, the way that we, you know, look at at building routes that we're going to ride—it's changed so much in the last in the last decade. And yeah. I think they're only going to get better. I do think that there are some issues, as you as you said, James. Like they're still super loud when they get wet a lot of the time. Uh, you can do some things to help that. You can bed in the the pads and rotors properly, et cetera, et cetera. But really there's sort of there is some fundamental issue there and and they do they just make noise that rim brakes often don't make uh i think that's something that the, the industry really needs to work on i did hear at the tour de france last last summer uh oh was that a pun was that a pun kelly maybe <laughs> i did hear at the tour de france last summer that shimano's the next version of durace their primary focus is on perfecting the road disc brake. So they're not apparently doing all that much to the actual drivetrain, which they've already pretty much perfected. The next focus is on perfecting that disc brake. So we have that to look forward to. Whenever we see the new Dur-Ace, which I think we're expecting sometime this year, probably. It feels like it's gonna be sometime this summer. Yeah. We don't have yeah, you know, we haven't received any sort of official invitation or anything, but based on Shimano's timelines Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that this summer is when the next race is due. Is that correct? Well, obviously, there's nothing official. But yeah, traditionally, Shimano would do a big group set launch in roughly April every year. So we have that to look forward to. We have potentially the perfected Shimano's version, the perfected uh, disc brake, road disc brake or so, gravel yeah. disc brake. So let me ask you guys this question. Looking forward to the next decade, do we think the next decade is when rim brakes in general are going to go the way of, say, friction shifting and just go away essentially entirely? Not entirely, but for the most part, yes. Yeah. I think by I th the end I of think, the decade, yeah. you will struggle to find a rim brake bike that is 
at any sort of high price point. Unless you go custom. Yeah. I think custom yeah. builders will find a market of people that still truly want rim brake bikes. Um, but I believe well, yeah, but, the big brands will phase it But in a custom market, you can find anything. Sure. For sure. But yeah, I mean, I think people will still be buying them. Uh, but I believe the, the shift will be big enough that the big brands will decide that there's not enough demand to bother offering such things. So I actually wonder hearing rumors of what shimano may or may not be including with durace with their hyper focus on kind of perfecting the hydraulic road disc brake for this next generation supposedly i actually wonder if this next durace group set might be one electronic only and two disc brake only Mm. I mean, would Shimano take would Shimano take that bold of a step? Because they have done stuff like that before. I mean, I think you know we've all been around long enough to to, to remember the you know the dual control flippy shifters on the mountain bike side that they put out quite a while ago. I mean, they they are not immune to really really bold questionable moves. <laughs> I'm not convinced that there's the demand is so strong for electronic shifting that Shimano would walk away from mechanical at this point in time. Uh, but I'm happy to be surprised. Was there a demand for dual control mountain bike shifters? No, and that's no. why Shimano doesn't make them anymore. No one, yeah, no one wanted penguin style shifters fitted to their mountain bikes. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, Shimano has been bold before, but I'd like to think that they might have learned that lesson. Uh, and that, you know, if there's market demand for mechanical shifting, that they won't force people into electronic. Hmm. I could see them doing it just because it's the flagship group. And, you know, it, they could say, hey, if you want, if you want mechanical, we still make Altegra. Go for it. But I mean, the true. thing is, when was the last time you saw someone running a Durace mechanical group? I mean, I guess aside from yesterday, <clears throat> I guess aside from the bike. Well, well, OK, fine. I mean, but it's still very much in the minority, though. I mean, like Neil ran one for for that mammal battle that he did with Jonathan Botter as a flagstaff. But you'd have to think that with the way things are trending, that electronic is going to continue getting lighter and continue being more reliable with longer battery life and um you know, it's just, it's just going to continue to get better and better. Whereas mechanical drivetrain development seems to basically have ended. I can't imagine Shimano's putting a whole lot of en- its top engineers on making mechanical drivetrains better. I'd agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, the mountain bike they they did obviously their new mountain bike twelve speed has had a lot of work on it, and that's just mechanical. But uh, my understanding is the investment in electronic group sets is massive and it's because of the connection to e-bikes so moving forward i believe e-bikes will actually be the uh the monetary carrot for electronic group sets getting some serious upgrades i have to say dave i would tend to agree with you just looking at everything that i've read in terms of where e-bikes are going for uh, just sort of general personal mobility um there is clearly way, way, way more money to be made with just getting the general population on bikes, period, than there is with enhancing the experience of the tiny, tiny subset of the population that is enthusiast cycling. Yes. Yeah. So so just um, just looping back to the disc brakes, I mean, Kaylee was mentioning the uh, disc brakes allowing wider tires. So without disc brakes, we wouldn't have gravel bikes. I would also just like to add that disc brakes have led to more comfortable frame designs by uh, not having interrupted uh, chain stays or seat stays. Uh, we have seen 
frames get more comfortable. But more importantly, uh, we're now seeing carbon wheels actually kind of being commoditized and coming down in price and actually no longer being dangerous for people to ride when they buy a cheap carbon wheel. And I think that is another area where disc brakes probably deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, if you're not using that braking service anymore, suddenly cheapo carbon rims aren't going to kill you. So that's a good thing. Well, probably won't kill you. Probably won't. You're but still yeah, taking your probably. life in your own hands if you're you're buying a, a carbon rim that, you know, it's not from a reputable company. All right, Kaylee, we only have a few things left on our list, I believe. What do you have next here? Well, you know, for just an honorable mentions here and then sort of in no particular order, I'm, I'm scrolling through this list that we have here. And I think the next one that stands out to me is dropper seat posts. And this one's going to speak more to the mountain bike listeners out there than uh, maybe the road. And, and uh, I guess there's some there's some people out using dropper posts and gravel bikes. I don't personally think that's really necessary, although it can be kind of fun. But the dropper post has basically completely changed the way that people ride mountain bikes. Once you've ridden with one for a while, you, it's pretty much impossible to go back to a non-dropper post mountain bike. I personally would take a dropper post and a hardtail over a full suspension bike any day of the week. I think that it, it allows for the type of riding that, that I like to do. You know, steep, technical, fun. And I think that it's, you know, as a, as a piece of equipment has done more to change off-road riding than pretty much anything in the last decade. That said, they did exist slightly before the beginning of this slightly. decade. Yeah. The, the difference now is that they're on pretty much every single mountain bike you can possibly buy, with the exception of maybe some very low-end bikes or some really sort of race-tuned cross-country bikes. But even those, most of the time, are coming with a dropper post these days. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing dropper posts even at, you know, World Cup level cross-country races now. I mean, they're not, they're not the norm necessarily, but it is, I, I would say it would be unusual to at least not see a handful of them in the field now. Yeah. How do you guys feel about dropper posts on gravel bikes? I find them to be very handy at stoplights. Yes. Um, I like it because I don't have to lift my leg as far to get on the bike. No. Um, I was kind of against them, but I just picked up a new gravel bike and it's got Shimano GRX where the dropper is actually integrated into the left-hand lever, uh, into the brake lever. And it's kind of cool. It's like actually ergonomic to use and uh, isn't in the way of anything else and uh, doesn't add all that much weight. And yeah, I mean, if you are riding trails that are better suited for a mountain bike, but you're on your gravel bike, it's it's kind of handy. Um, And that might be enough just to convince me that droppers could be a thing in in gravel in the future with the right shifter ergonomics but that all said winding back to dropper posts and why they have been so important is they have influenced uh mountain bike geometry design more than anything else as well so you know we're talking about disc brakes influencing gravel bikes dropper posts are the reason why we're seeing steeper seat tubes come to mountain bikes you know uh mountain bikes are progressively and forever getting slacker in the head angle but then manufacturers are having to bring the seat tube angles forward in order to get your weight forward for easier climbing uh, but then that saddle gets in your way if you're descending uh, and the dropper post allows you to get that saddle out of the way and also have a better climbing bike so uh yeah if uh as far as dropper posts go it's i don't think anything else has influenced mountain bike geometry design as much as the dropper post has honorable mention good job dropper posts i think we should all put height rights back on our bikes i have one well not on a bike but i do i do have one in a parts bin i found one at a uh 
I think I found one at either a garage sale or a swap meet or something like that, and it was like two bucks. Oh, you have to. You have to buy it. St- still, still in the original packaging. I have not even opened it, and uh, maybe it'll be worth like two dollars and twenty-five cents someday. <laughs> uh, describe a height right really quick for the listeners out there so, who don't know what we're talking about. A height right is sort of the ancient, ancient, ancient precursor to the modern dropper post, and what it was, uh, you know, back in the day in early mountain biking. Uh, seat post clamps used a quick release so that you could quickly raise and lower your saddle uh, depending on the terrain and what uh, Joe Breeze who was one of the earliest pioneers of mountain biking what he came up with was sort of like this little spring set up where the top of the spring it was kind of like kind of like a I don't really know how to describe. We're, we're doing this thing again in a podcast where we're talking about things that you're supposed to be holding your hand and showing people. Um, but the, you know, the spring was sort of shaped like a, I guess, like a right angle, like a big L sort of, and one part attached to the frame at the seat post collar, and the other part uh, sort of clamped to the middle of your seat post, so that when you opened up your quick release, you could just sort of sink your weight into the frame, and then you could basically get about, you know, one or two inches of extra clearance. And then when you uh, opened up your quick release again, the spring in the height right would automatically bring it back to the same position. And then you clamp it down and off you go. This is like a very slow dropper post. Very, 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 very slow dropper and ma- post. And manual. Yes. <laughs> and, and manual and uh, not quite as good. Although arguably more reliable than some of the, some of the poorer performing dropper posts out that there. Is, that has been the, the Achilles heel of the dropper post is, you know, they just fail. Pretty regularly, which is unfortunate. So they are still getting better, but you know maybe we'll see that sort of problem go away in the near future too. We'll see. Hopefully, I think we have time for one more. Who wants? Who wants one last honorable mention for our podcast version of the cycling tippies? Mm, I'm going to go ahead and put my hand up then. All right, let's hear it. And I'm going to say tubeless tires more for gravel than. Oh, I wanted to say that as well. Good, good call. Oh, hey, how about that? Yes. How about that? Mainly because, I mean, I, you know, I, I have followed the progression of tubeless road tires basically since mostly like like their mainstream inception with, with Hutchinson and Shimano. Um, and I've sort of been watching the industry progressively continue to fail at figuring out how to do it properly and you know, have some sort of industry-wide standard, which last I heard is still actually now... Uh, further off than than i had heard was potentially going to be Um, you don't say the bike industry failed to come together i know i know shocker shocker but but on gravel bikes on gravel bikes where it is really really important to have low pressure for uh for comfort and for traction um tubeless is a godsend because it basically just takes away pinch flats i mean you have to hit something really hard to pinch flat the casing of your tubeless tire and uh, but with a tubeless setup and with a with a decent tire, decent rim, I mean you can bottom out pretty frequently, even on some relatively sharp rocks, and still just continue riding and not lose a single bit of air. And that to me is a game changer because a ride where you may have flatted three or four times turns into a ride where you haven't flatted at all. Yeah, I'm still yeah. not a, a convert for road tubeless. My rule is over 30 mil tire, I will run tubeless, and under, I won't bother. And that's basically because if I'm running more than a 30 mil tire, I'm probably off-road and probably want that pinch flat protection. And it is pretty incredible. I mean, I think back to my like early cross-country mountain biking days is the late 90s, early 2000s. And my brother and I practicing changing flats on the front yard because you were pretty much guaranteed to flat like 
you had like a 50-50 chance every single time you lined up for a cross-country race that you were going to flat because you had tubes in there. And, and I remember, you know, Stan's no tubes showing up at Mount Snow and it like changing our lives <laughs> because all of a sudden we could run less than 30 PSI in our silly little tires and not pinch flat. And all of a sudden we had all this traction and it was you know, a much smoother ride. And that has just exponentially expanded into the gravel world. And it, it, it genuinely is, if you're, if you're running tubes in your gravel bike, the one upgrade we can absolutely hands down recommend is to go tubeless. Just take the tubes out of those wheels because you will, you'll thank us. You yes. run far far less pressure and flat far far fewer so, times. So on that point, we've actually uh, you know in Sydney and surrounding, we get quite like rocky rocky roads, and um, they're really just fire trails. But uh, you know, like we we get some pretty severe rocks, and flats uh, can be quite common. And because of that, uh, some of our gravel groups that we have that you know organize rides, there's a policy that you cannot come if you do not have tubeless. Uh, because it's just such a big issue. If someone rocks up with tubes, guaranteed flat, and then everyone has to wait. So it's just blanket rule, tubeless only rides. It's basically the only request. You can bring whatever bike you want, but it just has to be tubeless. Uh, and then further to that point, now when I'm testing gravel bikes, so many gravel bikes still come with tubes installed. I actually won't take that bike off-road until I've converted it to tubeless. Every time I've, I've tried to take a bike off-road, which has the stock tubes in it, I'm stuck on the side, fixing a pinch flat, putting a tube in. I've just given up on that. I'd go straight to tubeless now on any test bike I have, as long as it's got wider than 30 mil tires. I think that's actually been my main source of spare tubes over the last few years, actually. Because, you know, Dave, like you, a bike shows up, a gravel bike shows up uh, that has tubes in it. I take them out and set it up to tubeless. Uh, and then I end up with a spare tube. Although that also means that I have ended up with uh, a depleting stock stockpile of tubeless valves and sealant. So, so yeah, I guess with the with the tech covered, um, I wanted to mention a point, which is basically all the things that we've mentioned are really kind of fairly new, and we're seeing them improve all the time. And I think it's really the next decade where we'll see so many of these things actually become great. What are your thoughts? Tubeless, I think for sure, is uh, I feel like it's it's become very very close to being ironed out. Um, while there are a variety of different approaches to getting that kind of perfect tire rim interface and you know easy inflation and bead seating and all that, um, the fact of the matter is there are a number of good systems out there now. And all it'll take, even in the gravel world, um, all it'll take now is for some sort of consolidation into maybe one system, ideally, that consistently uh, delivers all of those good benefits to make it really kind of more consumer friendly. Um, but aside from that, that, that feels like really the only piece that's missing from that formula, and then we'll be there. Yeah, I think gravel bikes are going to continue to be perfected. I think that the road bike market is going to continue to shrink, which is bad news if you're a dedicated roadie. You know, it's not like road bikes are going to disappear or anything like that. But, you know, there's no question that big bike brands and small bike brands are spending most of their energy figuring out gravel bikes right now. And I don't see that slowing or stopping anytime soon. I don't know why it would. I mean, I think that this sort of shift to this new type of riding is not going to reverse itself over the next decade or so. You know, I think that things like Zwift, that is going to obviously continue to be perfected. I've said this over and over and over again. 
I want Mario Kart on Zwift. Please give me Mario Kart on Zwift. Then I will play Zwift and I will be happy with it. I think that we will, we're going to see some pretty incredible things with riding inside and riding online in the next decade. I mean, I think about how far it's come just in the last couple of years and sort of the realism and, and how, how trainers have gotten so much better because they have to be, because people want them to be as lifelike as possible to ride on Zwift. I think that that's going to continue. I think, yeah, I think there's a pretty good decade for bikes this last decade, but the next one looks like it's going to be even better. I mean, we've got all the pieces in place to provide the options for people to ride bikes how they want, where they want, in the way that they want. There's going to be so many different ways to get out there in the next decade. I'm pretty excited for that. Yeah, I think the past decade was was a decade of a lot of uh, new technology being introduced and a lot of uh, things in flux. And I think, yeah, the next decade will be the will be refinement of those. Shall we wrap it up there then with an on an optimistic note with the next decade looking up? Yeah, I'm optimistic. Are you optimistic, James? I'm optimistic enough. <laughs> That's Let's put big. it that way. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. I'm optimistic. I think we're all pretty optimistic. And who knows? Things are going to be invented in the next decade that we aren't thinking of. Because if we were thinking of them, then we would invent them. And then we would be rich. But we are not doing that. So, Like silent Velcro. Like silent Velcro. I'm mm. sure someone can invent that. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's stuff Adam, coming. Maybe. There's stuff coming that we we, you know, we cannot yet conceive of. And that's part of the fun of all of this. The end of this decade, we will be riding bikes once again differently than we ride them right now. I think it's going to be a continuation along the same path that we're currently on, but who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll only ride inside in 2030. Well, we, will, we will check back in another decade or so when we, when, we, when we look at the next past decade with another Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. Yes. But in the meantime, this will be the end of this, I guess, decade in review on the nerd alert podcast and in two weeks time we will be back with another regular episode of nerd alert where we'll discuss some of the latest and greatest tech topics uh we were going to bring back the what bike should i buy segment and then we are going to introduce the ask a mechanic segment where we're going to ask zach and myself and dave a bunch of but hopefully not terribly challenging questions but we'll see if we have the answers to them all if you've liked what you've heard today please give us a rating or please subscribe Oh, that was my dog shaking your collar. Excuse me. Please, please consider subscribing or giving us a rating. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify and uh, SoundCloud and pretty much everywhere and a bunch of different platforms that we've never heard of that we keep getting requests for. But yes, please hit subscribe. It does help us continue to do what we do here, which is bring you the latest and greatest and our honest opinions on our all things bicycle tech. So thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. See ya.